0: This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller.
1: My guest today is Chris DeRussia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. Chris, always a pleasure to catch up with you.
2: Hey, Jason. Great to be with you.
1: Today, we're talking about the latest software security memo that OMB released as part of the effort to improve federal cybersecurity as part of the executive order from May 2021 that President Biden signed. Let's just start with some basics. Let's discuss some of the highlights of the software security memo and some of the deadlines that agencies have over the next six or nine months.
2: We're talking about uh, OMB uh, memo 2218, so this is about enhancing security of software supply chain ensuring you know, secure software development practices, as you mentioned, the task in executive order 14028 last year, and we really tried to map out a series of steps that allow us to mature and prepare for implementing this framework and ensuring that everybody's really adopting the practices. And so we segmented things out in kind of three, four, six, nine months spaced windows of taskings. You know, for example, asking agencies to Inventory all of their software uh, that would be requirements in the memo within 90 days, and and doing things like OMB posting instructions for any extensions or waivers that an agency might need to submit, in also in that 90-day window. And then, kind of building from there, and and ensuring that agencies' CIOs are developing consistent processes to communicate requirements to vendors to all the appropriate folks in their agency. They're going to have to be involved with their Uh, collecting attestation letters at some point um, we're providing guidance to vendors and ensuring trainings occurring in all the right places so you know we really kind of lay it all out throughout the memo where we where we build out to and we don't actually um, request any of the attestation letters back for about nine months and we even start with critical software as another prioritizing mechanism and then a year for the rest so that we can learn throughout this entire process, Jason, and kind of continue to develop it and, and put new guidelines and guidance out there as we go.
1: You mentioned this kind of the, if you will, where you hear this often in technology, the crawl, walk, run idea of software uh, security. When you talk about critical software, you're defining that how, again, I, I know there's a, there is a definition in, in either law or regulation, but but maybe give folks an idea of, of how what you all, when you talk about critical software, what do you mean?
2: So, Jason, we actually defined critical software in a memo that we released at last year, M2130. And so NIST put a whole bunch of guidelines together on secure development practices around that. And gave, we gave clear definitions of where we were starting for, for critical software. So that's all clearly defined and out there. And now, you know, this memo is really building on those efforts.
1: All right, we will definitely link to that memo as well to remind folks of where to find some of that that information. The impetus behind this, beyond the executive order, of course, is what happened with solar winds almost two years ago now. Maybe talk about how that was an impetus, how really that got this whole discussion around secure software supply chain going and really brought it back to light for a lot of agencies and, and for uh, the, the Biden administration specifically.
2: As you know, SolarWinds was an impetus, a big impetus for EO14028 and the other events that occurred after that, the Microsoft Exchange event, Colonial Pipeline, et cetera. But, you know, broadly, SolarWinds was a real wake-up call for for all of us, and it, it made us focus on a broad swath of root cases, secure software development practices being one, I mean, you can find a direct tie in the event you know, the initial vector of attack on on the vendor was focused on the, the company's build environment, right? And so that led to a very effective supply chain attack. After that, so we're going to face lots of different types of attacks, and um, we really just need to ensure that we're enhancing um, the security of of software kind of in all cases. And then again, you know, w- w- with a strong focus. In, Prioritize focus on on the critical software side. So really, you know, there there was both direct and kind of broad ties back to the solar winds event that led to that's having a really big focus on the secure software practices for us.
1: From your chair in the Federal CISO from OMB, what's the the big lesson learned, if you will, from these software attacks over the last year and a half or so? Beyond we got to do better, we got to do more to to secure software.
2: You can have Events like Solar Winds, where it was a concerted effort and very stealthy attack measure, and you can have corollary, equally large and complicated events like Log4j, where although that was an actual sort of design flaw, it, it wasn't necessarily one adversary being in, in, engaged in creating it. It still caused a really massive distributive problem, which led to another, a number of actors entering that space. And so, I, I mean, I, these types of big events are they're complicated. They're hard to predict. And so what, what we really need to do is just focus on these issues. It gets back to, uh, in a lot of ways, to our focus on uh, zero trust principles, right? And just kind of get back to fundamentals. And again, to secure development practices and ensuring everybody's following them, holding out S-bombs and, and really kind of understanding the software that we've got so so that we can handle and manage these events quickly when, if they continue to occur. And you know, I think, unfortunately, uh, it is predictable that they that they may. And, and we really just need to try to reduce them and prevent that, of course, and we're, we're focused like a laser beam on that, but also just being ready to react to them um, faster and better is another key focus.
1: I want to touch upon this idea of self-attestation, of all the things, when I read through the memo, that was probably the one that stood out to me. And I know it's just a minimum level of security. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor. But we've seen self-attestation with, uh, example, i give you is NIST 800-171 with uh, controlled unclassified information. And we've seen that that just didn't work well. DOD specifically has been so concerned. They developed their own set of metrics and old set of standards called CMMC because Companies said, "Oh no, we protected the data," and then in the end, they actually didn't. Why did you start with self attestation and versus something a little more rigorous? I, I did was pleased to see that you do mention in there if you need a third party assessment, lean on FedRAMP three PAOs versus trying to again do what DoD did, which is develop a whole set of different uh, approaches. But but give me a, a little bit of background behind why self attestation versus anything else.
2: You used the key word: start with and. I, mean, I I would agree that self-attestations do have their limits and also maybe even come with some risks, like it could create a, a compliance mentality. But I also think that they're absolutely the right way to start with something as new as the secure software development framework, as everybody's learning the taxonomies around that, as folks are learning how to do a sound third-party assessment on all those practices. There's some new... Practices in there again. We've already mentioned one SBOMs, right? And and that's and that's in this framework, and that's a piece of it. But that's, as we know, something that's still really maturing and being built out. And like, how do you assess what is good there? Is is a question that is being answered as we go. But again, as we talked about already, with the approach of maturing agencies' readiness to ensure these requirements are being followed, it's the same thing. We we want to make sure that we're learning all of the lessons as we get into it. If there's a risk situation where an agency feels like they need to have that third party assessment right now, again, that is fine. We, we encourage that in the memo that, that that's a decision that they can make now and they should feel free to do that. But we weren't ready to kind of say that that is what we need in every case. And, and that I, I think is the right call and we'll continue to assess that decision as we mature and learn more and move down the road.
1: Is there any concern from your perspective that not just it becomes a compliance issue where I am just going to check the box and say I did it, but what's the teeth or, or is there something that OMB and, and working with GSA and maybe the Federal Acquisition Regulations Council is doing to add maybe a little bit of teeth to it that say, if you self-attest to meeting that and then you don't, what can happen to you? Is, is there any teeth that you're thinking about or that you can talk about?
2: I mean, just start with the fact that I mean, I personally, most vendors take self attestation pretty seriously. I mean, they know that eventually they're going to have to turn in that homework, or that they could be evaluated by a third party, and they're going to be held accountable if they are not actually doing what they have attested to and signed off on on and and told the federal government that they are doing. So there, you know, there will be consequences there. But you know, also to to another thing that you mentioned, right, like. This approach is really allowing us to learn where the gaps are and and keep moving. And we're gonna be situated because there will be FAR rules that come out and there's gonna be binding requirements in, in all federal contracts um, around these practices. It's gonna take some time, right? And and this memo is really about getting agencies focused and, and learning and maturing uh, their practices so that when those become requirements everywhere right that that we're gonna have learned a lot and be more mature and ready to you know ready for that moment
1: was there any discussion maybe an early draft of a memo and I'm not asking you to talk about things obviously that is predecisional or anything like that but where, did you have if you can offer any sort of insights was there any discussion about not doing self attestation and maybe doing some thing where okay we're gonna start small but we're gonna require a third party to look at the documentation or, or, or something like that to, to really add a little more teeth to it or did you just feel like it just it would have been too soon and and too it would have caused more problems than it would have solved?
2: Well remember, I mean this is a framework that was issued just some months ago. So right, I'm not really sure the ecosystem has been developed around supporting having compulsory requirements for third party assessments in every instance, right? I mean we still have to get the attestation form printed through PRA and public comment and out as a, as, a, as a standard, right? So, like, there's just so many building blocks and pieces that need to come before wh- what you're describing, in my view, and, and we're just being responsible about the rollout. But again, you know, uh, that, that doesn't mean that an agency can't make that decision just to, to, barring all of that you kind of have a, a assessment anyways, it's something that they, they can do at any, at any time. So I, so I think that the, the the teeth are there, Jason, for, for anybody that, that wants to do it now. But before we kind of require that in full across the board, we really just need to have all these pieces in place and have a mature, more mature ecosystem in place.
1: Chris, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation about the Software Supply Chain Memo. My guest today is Chris DiRuscia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Chris Russia, the Federal Chief Information Security Officer. I want to jump over to another piece of the memo that I thought was really interesting. Is OMB writes, the memo doesn't impact government-developed software. And I thought that was a very interesting aside because there's a lot of government-developed software in in government, right? You have back-end systems that pick on the Social Security Administration that they've developed 50, 60 years ago. Uh, There's GOTS, right, government off the shelf. So give me a sense of why you decide to go in that direction, but at the same time, how are you defining government-developed software? I mean, customization, does that make it, you know, does GOTS fall into that category? Help me understand this a little more.
2: Let's start with the definition. So I believe we use the term agency develop software in the memo, but you use the term GOTS. We mean the same thing, so I can kind of put that to bed. But really, as you point out, this memo is is focused on an agency that purchases commercial third-party software, and that's regardless of if they you know customize that software um, after the purchase, right? So that that's all in, in play here. Uh, but look, you know, we also do state explicitly in this memo that agencies are expected to be following these practices. It's just the, the the main focus of the EO was kind of directing us on this third party and you know commercial software piece, and so that is where we have focused here. But we have and we will continue to do plenty to ensure that agencies are following security development practices. That's a, that's a core part of any good security program, and something that we we definitely track at OMB and and discuss a lot in places like the CISO Council and whatnot.
1: All right, I appreciate that because I think uh, you know from a Somebody who's been following this for a long time, it knew that these terms get thrown around, and, and I think that, that helps def, uh, put a little more clarity on it. I, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier as well, which is the inventory piece. Uh, you said one of the first things agencies have to do within 90 days is come, come up with a software inventory. I, I imagine of all the things they have to do, that should be a pretty light lift, generally speaking. Nothing's easy in government, we know that, but between the Megabyte Act and some of the stuff that uh, DHS is doing through CDM, they should have a pretty good idea of what's on their network already. Is, is that that expectation that that inventory as that first step should be fairly smooth?
2: It just, that's my general expectation as well. I think it's why you see it as one of the first and shortest requirements. We, I think we give 90 days. And what you stated, our expectation is that particular CFO act agencies have that information on hand. It may, it may take them a minute to kind of gather it and ensure it's complete and, and in the way that we're asking them to, so you know we've given them a little time. But but as you state, that is something that we believe uh, agencies should be able to meet fairly quickly.
1: And what that will do is it'll enable them to understand first of all what's critical software and what's not, how much of it do they have, and then begin that process to work with vendors, work with others about ensuring that that these other pieces of documentation, the self-attestation comes together. Where does SBOMS fit into this discussion too? Obviously, it mentions it in the memo itself, but give me a sense of where they fit. And was there any discussion about just requiring SBOMS more broadly, even at a very high level, You know, not, not all the way through the software chain, but at least at the top level software?
2: We had a lot of really good conversations around that. But as, as you know, SBOMS are a very new capability tool. You know, I'd even give you an analogy. I, I sat on the cyber safety review board where we review log4j, as you're, you're you're well aware. And yeah, I think one of the things that we learned as we talked to a lot of different organizations is that very very few, if any, had really focused or relied on uh, S-bombs to enable their vulnerability response there. And that was mostly because it wasn't mature enough or integrated into their vulnerability management and incident response procedures yet, right? And that's maybe a small sample size, but I think pretty representative, frankly, of like where the state of maturity is on SBOMs. We're doing a lot to encourage and to foster the growth of, of these tools. CIS is doing quite a bit. Um, these, these will be included in uh, upcoming FAR rules, for example, as well. It's the, so, you know, so there's, there's a lot of focus on SBOMs and we will be driving towards compulsory. There's, there's, there's no question, but to sort of make it compulsory across the board at this moment in time, again you know I, I just, we want progress here but we don't want to create a situation where we require something that the vast majority of agencies and vendors aren't ready for right that that doesn't make sense to us and and it doesn't make sense to us because we spent the time talking to people talking to vendors listening to them conducting public RFIs public workshops and we and we learned a lot from that process and really it influenced the design of this memo where we think we've got a pretty good sense of where the state of maturity is and we feel like we sort of thread that needle here to to start and to to do our part to ensure the agencies are maturing all their processes while we're asking the vendors to do the same and we're right we're just kind of moving concertedly responsibly in in the right direction and i and for that reason I really do think this is the right approach and and if we miss something or there's a gap we've also got places to insert that and adjust our approach along the way as we continue to learn. Chris I think you bring up a really important
1: point that the the level of maturity that it's happening across is still fairly new. Still very, it's still growing. So the the big question then, of course, is okay. Memos out. You talk to folks like us. You put a blog post out. What are you doing across the CIO and CISO council to begin to socialize the policy to start answering questions? And then how are you all also going to work with vendors because they obviously have to understand and begin implementation?
2: Those are the two communities of interest, right? You know, I guess let's start with the agencies. And again, you know, we ensured that we consulted with agency CIOs, procurement officials throughout the development of the memo. Uh, that was, that was something that we, we were really focused on uh, engaging with the councils early. You know, we've communicated through the councils, shared implementation plans and also just, uh, talk, talking points that they can use with their peers, with uh, their leadership to explain what this memo is. Like these are things that, that we're providing as tools. This month, we're going to the, the, all of the councils, CIO, CISO, uh, acquisition council, kind of on a roadshow to uh, engage those officials. Ensure that they're we're landing the key points of the requirements here. seeing if they have any questions. So yeah, lot, lots of engagement on the agency side. Flipped your second question about you know vendors. Again, already talked about what what we did um, to engage in, in in the beginning and. And I've also, I think didn't mention, but I've also been talking to a lot of the trade associations along the way. And we'll continue to do that in the coming weeks and months. And I think the associations are a good way for us to get uh, to a lot of folks at once and, and kind of hear all the feedback. Uh, they always have fantastic feedback for us. And uh, so we're looking forward to just doing that and learning what we can do to be clearer and make things clearer. You know, we're always happy to take that input and opportunities. All right. I know there's plenty more to come there.
1: Uh, Chris, before I maybe shift gears real briefly, is there anything else about the memo you want to make sure that you get out? Any other messaging around it that's uh, important for agencies and/or vendors to know?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, why are we doing this? I think is that that we want everybody to be truly adopting secure development practices, not for the sake of adopting them, but because security is an enabler to our future is the future of everything digital. And if we don't build secure software, it's not going to do what we want it to do, right? It, it, we're not going to achieve our purposes and goals of using the technology or completing our mission. That's the whole point. Um, we're, we're, it's not a requirement for requirements sake. This is an enabler to prosperity and growth, right? And and it's crucial and it is good for all of us. and we really just want to ensure that people are thinking about this that way, that it is, this is something that they want and need and is good for them, not a new compliance requirement that isn't going to have any value or benefit, right? And and I think that just having the right mentality and taking the time, if you do already understand that and live that ethos, to help share that with others in your organization so that they don't look at it as something new and burdensome, but they look at it as something that is critical like they would in looking at their vehicle having uh, good seat pelts and airbags and brakes right like we need people to start understanding and thinking about technology this way when you think about security and so so this is you know NIST put a really fantastic framework together we'll continue to determine best implementation practices and best practices that are starting to come out too. I'm excited about that and, and this would be a, a really positive journey um, that we're all embarking on together.
1: Moving over to what have you done for me lately? This memo is out, of course. Uh, what else is coming out? What else are you working on cyber EO related? What else should we should be watching for, whether it's new policies and memos or just more efforts? What else is on your plate, if you will, uh, around the cyber EO? Well, believe it or
2: not, this is actually the fifth uh, and final OMB policy memo that was tasked by the EO. So you know, from the policy perspective, we're really just busy implementing all the 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 tasks and actions that we put in there, and working with agencies to ensure they're resource to 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 implement. So that's like kind of our big focus. We went from setting the policy, really kind of like implementation mode, Um, and so then we're we're working on getting good data, performance measurement metrics around that. You know, I think you can expect moving forward to start to see public facing metrics um, showing how well we're doing based on everything that we set in place, right? That like we had to do that first table set, but then we, we are definitely gonna start uh, ensuring that we're telling the story with data. And so that's like, you know, that'll take a little time, but that's coming. Um, and then as far as you know, the EO is concerned, we have the FAR rules, uh, that'll, that'll be out So The section two ones will come out for public comments uh, in the coming months. Section four FAR rules will come out next year, so you know those, those are those are going to be a big deal because that's really about getting kind of contract clauses right and solid uh, across all federal government agencies. That that that's a really big lift, but also really really important one that will um, kind of lift everybody up. Um, so you know, Jason, there's, there's just a there's a lot of work attached to all of this, but um, but we do feel good that we've kind of gotten through five really important memos and really instantiating clear guidance and direction, you know, our priorities and, and where we need to head. So um, we're excited about implementation phase and we're just uh, staying busy and uh, continuing the hard work. All right. I know
1: your plate is full and,
2: and cyber never
1: sleeps. So you will uh, continue to uh, have plenty to do over the next year or more. Uh, Chris Russia is the federal chief information security officer. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join me.
2: Jason, it's always a pleasure talking
1: to you. I'm Jason Miller, and we take a quick break. When we come back, we'll shift gears to talk about cybersecurity at the Veterans Affairs Department. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest for this segment is Kurt Dalbenny, the Assistant Secretary in the Office of Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. I caught up with Benny after he spoke at the recent 930 Gov conference. Let me just start with the, with the security rigor piece that you mentioned. You said you want to get to a point where you want to get, have more look at the ATO and say, okay, where are we at? Look at all our ATOs. Can you just talk a little bit more what that process may look like or what you're thinking about or how it would work? Because the ATO process, people love to hate it. A lot of agencies are m- moving towards a continuous ATO. Is that where you're going toward? Can you just give me a little more?
0: So I think they should love the ATO process because it is one of the gates that exists where you can step back and say we have a decision to make as to whether something should be on our network or not. And so what we're pushing towards is what, I, what I've found in the VA so far is that we're really good about doing the the required procedures to get all the documentation together. But what we have an opportunity to do is have more of that last look of saying if I look at everything in aggregate, do I feel good about the overall security of that system, or should I say, no, these are the three things that I actually don't feel good, and they can be three initiatives that we've got in terms of things like zero trust, for instance. And as a result, we're going to say, you've got to come back in a certain period of time Even if we grant the ATO now, it's for a much shorter period of time, and we want these things remediated. And then the other thing is you've got to actually make sure that team has the resources to do that remediation. So it can't just be, no, no, go back and and change the world. You've got to be reasonable in terms of what you expect them to do, but you've got to think of it as a gate, I think.
1: A lot of these have been doing for quite a while. The the plan of action milestones, we've known that, that exists We've known that agencies have, have always said, well, we'll grant the, the, something that doesn't exist called the interim ATO. Where are you at with this process? Is it piloting it? Is it just an idea right now and you hope to get it going? Is it in process in, in a big way? Well,
0: we're f- starting to focus on the most critical systems we have at the VA. And we're starting to look at each of them and figuring out what it would mean to be more rigorous in that approval process. And we're in the early days. I mean, I've been in the role for eight months now, and this is a place where I say I've, we've, we've got a set of systems we're looking at, and we're going to ta- look at that ATO and say, do we overall, will technical people say we feel good about it or not, and what remediations do we need? The other thing I'll say, as you say, is the POAMS process. It's great to ha- be rigorous about defining the, the um, plans of action. However, they can't just sit in a big database and not get done. And so it it can be a little bit of a crutch unless you're rigorous about making sure that those things get signed off.
1: Over the years, VA has been labeled by IGs and other auditors as uh, cyber as a material weakness. We, we, we've seen the, uh, the FISMA reports and we've seen the reports from the IG. It, every CIO I've talked to over the last 15, 20 years have said that's my biggest priority is, is get rid of the material weakness. And I think you guys have gotten closer. You've gotten better reports from IGs. It, obviously, that's one of your goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to tell me it's not. I know that. What are some of those other steps you're taking to kind of address those big hairy issues of, of cyber, uh, the HTO yeah. is a good example.
0: Yeah, I think the FISMA process actually, coming from commercial, you think of it as this impediment keeping you from selling your product to the federal government. I actually think it's a good process. I think they're fairly rigorous in terms of, of reviewing our cyber posture. And so we have been working with our um, CIS team, our internal security team, to say, what are the most important things for us to resolve? And then I meet with the team every month. We have an initiative that says we're going to do these first. We're going to be, we're going to hold the teams accountable. We're going to go from these to these to these in a, in a succession of waves to improve that. But uh, there's no solution other than doing the hard work. In a lot of cases, you'll find that we'll come up with a great... In the past, we come up with a great plan, but there hasn't been the execution follow-through. And again, it comes back to engineering rigor. You just got a. Um, define what you're going to do and then make sure you get it done.
1: I want to jump over to something you mentioned at a hearing back in June timeframe. It was May around paying for uh, employees in terms of uh, cyber pay. And you yeah. you'd mentioned at the hearing oh, we're working with OPM and, and potentially the CIO Council on figuring this out. Is there any update on that or is there anything you're doing outside of that to, to address this Pay gap because I know like DHS for instance has their uh, cyber teams that where they're able to pay a little bit more because and that came from Congress. But are, are you also looking at any sort of a any update on that initiative or b anything else VA is doing to, to address this challenge?
0: We are we're continuing the work. We're pushing hard on that. It does have to come from OPM. We could do we're everything we can do within the confines of what we have the ability to do today. We are doing. But at some point, the actual we need a special pay scale because the numbers are significantly off. And that gets, you know, you could do it just, we could try to do that just for the VA. It's a similar problem with all the other agencies as well, and that's why the OPM wants to get involved. But we're pushing as hard as we can there. That is the, but it has to go through that process. So we're, we're just pushing hard.
1: Is there there any – where is it in the process, I guess, is the question. I mean, I know it's up to OPM, but – Well, it's not up to OPM.
0: We're part of a cross-agency group that is defining it. We have defined exactly what we think the gaps are, and so I'm not – I think we're going to try to get it through this fall. It has to go – it would have to go through legislation to ultimately get done, and that is a very uncertain process. But we want to get our part of it done this fall. One last one. You, you mentioned the, the PACT Act and
1: specifically the impact it's going to have on the uh, VBA. Uh, how are you from a CIO's perspective, from an IT perspective, helping VBA and, and the rest of VA really ramp up to, to accept
0: this potentially big wave of applications that you said is, is great, is exactly what the PACT Act is supposed to do? Okay. Well, there's multiple ones, angles to this. The first one is they have to have, when we bring on more agents, they have to have PCs, and they have to have their PCs very quickly, they have to be able to log on. That's the more mundane aspect of it, but very hard to do. The second thing is, how do you make sure that when somebody goes to VA.gov, they know how to apply for benefits, and what are all the different ways that they would come into the system and want to be helped? The next thing is, they're going to get this onslaught of additional claims, we need to be able to to process those faster. And there there's an opportunity to do automation, and the automation has multiple angles. One, it's about bringing together in an automated fashion the data that's necessary from the different systems so that the claims adjudicator can make the decision more quickly. Two, it's about in more simple cases, where, for instance, we fully automated things around hypertension, where the day, where the actual decision rule is quite simple. You basically can pull together the data, and in certain cases, you can make that decision automatically. And so, we're pushing to do more and more of those cases, but do it in a very mature and um, supportable way. And so you start with the simpler cases. And then the third thing we're doing is if you think about the average claims application as having multiple elements, you need to be able to break that down into its pieces. And each one has data demands, but more, it could be that individual elements can be automated, um, whereas the adjudicator has to pull those all together into a single package.
1: The PCP's You said more mundane, but difficult with supply chain challenges. Are you facing any supply chain challenges that you know of, like in terms of buying laptops or desktops?
0: Uh, We, like everybody, have had that challenge. We actually have ordered a large number of PCs because we saw this coming and had seen it coming for a long time. And so in an organization of 400,000-plus desktops, we always have to have a flow coming, and we've adjusted our flow. We do have the fortune of being a large... Um, source of demand. And so we've worked closely with, with PC po- suppliers to make sure we've got enough demand. And then last
1: supplier. one, automation you brought up, I thought was really interesting, the way you talked about we can set up automation to, for instance, look at if these five things are true, then the person 99.9% of the time gets approved or gets denied right. or whatever it is. I, I, is that in the? Is that actually happening, or is that an idea? Where are you at with
0: applying well, that? Actually, we have already automated a few claims scenarios, um, and we've also done the first uh, breaking up of a claim into multiple parts and automated one of the piece parts as well. So it's actually in place.
1: Kurt Dalbeni is the Assistant Secretary in of the Office of Information and Technology and Chief Information Officer for the Department of Veterans Affairs. I caught up with him after the recent 9:30 Gov conference. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll shift gears once again and talk to Army CIO, Raj Iyer, about the future of the service's network modernization. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest for this final segment is Army CIO, Raj Iyer, who will offer an update on the Enterprise IT as a Service, or ITES program, and where the Army is going next. Enterprise IT as a service. I got a rumor mill. I'll have to ask you to, to see if you could help me out here. That uh, the Army had made a decision, maybe to sunset that prototype or that program, uh, and maybe move on to whatever's next. Can you talk a little bit about what the status of ITES Enterprise IT as a service?
3: So ITES to us was always a pilot. And so I wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody recognized that, you know, it was, uh, it, you know, we wanted to learn something out of it. We wanted to understand the complexity and the, or the challenges associated with moving to, you know, IT as a service across the Army. Um, le- how do we leverage new and innovative technologies, you know, from the, from the private sector? And how do we, you know, deliver high-quality services to our end users, right? So that was the... That was what we wanted to achieve out of those pilots, and so we established three pilots you know three years ago, and as we started to look at the first three sites that were getting implemented, um, it was very clear to us that we didn't need um, you know all nine sites to be fully implemented before we saw lessons learned and so um, the first three sites told us uh, a few things: one is commercial technologies absolutely existed you know to meet our requirements. There was uh, there was no doubt about it. The second was it was very important for us to acknowledge that at the end of the day, for us to adopt commercial technologies at scale, we had to do this for all of the army's 288 post camps and stations. And an approach where if we only took if we only look at say the army's 40 or so top installations, and said, hey, we're going to give you the world's best services here for the for these 40 but then the other 240 were going to be stuck with some really bad service, we would not have met, you know, the objective. And so it was important for us to look at how we were going to scale enterprise IT as a service across all 288 post-camps stations. And quite frankly, we did not have a path for that, and it was not affordable for us to get that. Thirdly, it was very important for us to look at it from, you know, a skill set perspective. If we outsourced all of this to industry, all of service delivered to industry, what would that mean to our organic workforce and how were we gonna you know, reskill and upskill them to take advantage of all of these technologies of the future. And if we didn't have an element of that in our strategy, then it was very easy for us to quickly, you know, um, I mean, whittle away our talent. Either our best people would leave Or, you know, they would have no opportunity or exposure to, you know, come up to speed on all these new technologies. So looking at all of those things, what we've now decided is that we are going to sunset and terminate those pilots. And that process is underway right now. But what we have done is we've taken lessons learned from every one of those technologies that were part of those pilots and we're going to do an implementation across all 288 post camps and stations. So it's more like a, the Air Force approach where they where they did a horizontal implementation rather than where, what the Army's approach was, which is more vertically integrated. One example where we've already shown we can do this is Army 365. Army 365 came out of Enterprise IT as a service. And so we could show that that model does scale. And whether it's virtual desktop infrastructure, BYOD, SD-WAN, All of these and ITSM, these are all the components that we're going to be implementing across the Army over the next few months.
1: So it sounds like to me that it was a successful pilot in the sense of you learned a lot, and now you're taking some of the pieces and say, we can't do 100% of it, but these 20%, this 60%, whatever the number is, is really going to be
3: valuable. That's right. And it has to be valuable for every user across the Army. You made a great comment
1: of a recent event the Army PEO C3T talked about, which was the Army's done building big monolithic systems. That's not going to happen on my watch. I think it was something you said specifically. Discuss how you're going to reach that goal. That's a huge culture change as much as it is a technology change, the move to agile DevSecOps you mentioned. Talk a little bit about that philosophy and, and, and how are you pushing the Army in that direction because – the big monolithic system is something, unfortunately or fortunately, DoD is known for.
3: This kind of big bang approach, you know, hasn't really served us well. And now the the, the positive, um, the good news piece of it is, you know, when you have something that's fully vertically integrated, you usually have one vendor or one system integrated that you, know, that you can tap to, and it all comes packaged in one solution. However, you know, the, from both from a vendor lock and perspective and the total cost of ownership, as well as our our inability to continuously modernize and upgrade has been a challenge and and you can take you know all kinds of examples whether it's our erp systems you know to mission command systems you know we continue to see this kind of vertical integration really isn't helping us However, I recognize that this vision that we've laid out is going to take some time. And, and so it means that we now have to focus away from, you know, being, you know, system-centric or application-centric to become data-centric. And so if you shift the, shift the focus to data and, you know, you make sure that, the, you, know, the, you know, data is not, you know, is exposed and people can get access to it through APIs and, and they can use it, you know, to build their own applications, little small micro applications at the point of need, then that truly changes how, you know, we've been building, you know, applications in the past. And so that is the transformation that we're on when it comes to building applications. Uh, And and we're going to test it. I mean, you know, the first is going to be the Army's Enterprise Business Systems Convergence, which is our, you know, modernization of our ERP systems. We are, ex- we are going to be taking this path. And and so, you know, industry is going to tell us, you know, whether this is feasible or not and how it's going to work. But, you know, we've laid that vision out. It's the same thing when it comes to c 2 c 2 is all about interoperability and being able to take data from all of these programs of record and then bringing it into a single pane of glass for decision-making. And today, you know, if we cannot do that uh, because that data is locked into proprietary formats or systems... And we need point-to-point interfaces to get to this data, then you know that is not getting us to that single pane of glass, um, you know, uh, you know, where we need it. So, so we have uh, so we have a number of efforts underway, um, and one of them foundational is the uh, data fabric. So we've talked about data fabric as a key technology that's going to help us stitch. You know, um, multiple data sets together, um, and and by the way, we want that to be a solution that we can apply at the tactical uh, for the tactical data needs, as well as the strategic data needs. And so we do not we did not feel like we needed two separate solutions, one for tactical and one for enterprise. If we architect this the right way and we focus on the data, we can indeed get there.
1: The biggest difference between this monolith move away from monolithic is getting the acquisition side to understand it what's the process by which you were working with the acquisition folks to push that kind of idea concept of agile yep. DevSecOps ops down
3: oh absolutely so you know doug bush came on as the acquisition executive one of the first conversations you know he and i had really was around you know how do we innovate software acquisition in the army and uh he is a strong believer in two things and one is leveraging the software acquisition pathways Uh, which, by the way, is, you know, one of the pathways in the DoD 5000 that allows the acquisition community to do agile development. And yet, across the DoD and even in the Army, we have not leveraged that authority to be able to do agile development and DevSecOps. So we're going to be so we're looking at that aggressively for enterprise business systems convergence to adopt that methodology as well as some other you know programs that are underway. Is how do we leverage that framework um, you know uh, to be able to do that? The second is how do we leverage colorless money, colorless funding, because you know when you do DevSecOps, there really is no you know you know transition from something that's built into sustainment. You are You know, software is never done. You're continuously building, you're continuously evolving, and, and, you know, modernizing your application. So this artificial colors of money divide between development money and O&M needs to go away and and he recognizes that and so so i think we have great support from uh asalt right now and now it's a question of getting you know congress and everybody else on board as well as we start to transform some of our programs into this new uh, paradigm
1: uh, roger Iyer is the army's chief information officer i very much enjoyed our conversation we could talk a lot longer but i, I know you, you're uh, you've been very
3: generous so thank you so much no thank you for the opportunity and truly enjoyed the discussion that's all the
1: time we have for today. You just heard from Army CIO Raj Iyer. Earlier in the program, you heard from VA CIO Kurt Dalbenny and from Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris Russia, who led off the show. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network.
0: You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.